Colossians uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Scripture says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has to complain against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father, through Him. May God bless His Word to us uh, here this morning. The subject uh, of today's sermon is sanctification. Our personal progress in Christ. Our personal progress in the faith. The uh, old Baptist confession uh, says this of sanctification. It says, They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life 
in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in His Word hath prescribed to them. You know, it is and always has been uh, my primary hope, my primary goal, and my primary uh, mission, if you will, uh, for us to grow above and beyond anything else. You know, I know I've said this before, but I say again, above and beyond anything else, uh, that would be temporal, uh, above and beyond anything else we might have on our mind and, and things that might even be in our future, none more important than our growing in Christ. You know, we talk about it all the time that our chief aim is to be according to the Scripture. And even as we closed in this section in Colossians chapter 3, that whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Our chief end should be the glory of God. And let me tell you, friends, how we can most do that in this life. And it is as we personally progress in the faith and in Christ. Now... We talked about sanctification uh, as one of the points uh, from last week when we studied in 2 Thessalonians. You remember from in that text, we found there a great outline of the, of the comprehensive work of God in salvation. We found that Paul said that we are bound to give thanks to God. That is, we are under obligation to give thanks to God in response to the very salvation that we have. That salvation there being described to be given to the beloved of the Lord because He hath from the beginning chosen us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To which you were called, Paul says, by our gospel. That was rich in all kind of different theology and doctrine in regard to our salvation. We learned about election. We also learned about sanctification. And we learned in that text this very simple truth that sanctification happens by the Spirit. You and I cannot sanctify ourselves any more than we could save ourselves. Sanctification is wrought in us by the enabling power, by the, the living power of God through the Holy Spirit. We are sanctified by the Spirit. Uh, in that sense then, we are passive in regard to this process of sanctification. What that means is that we are being acted upon. Uh, God is, is, is outside of us and inside of us, as we'll see in a moment, uh, doing something to us. And that is our hope. If we were to think about anything that would have any progressive effect uh, that is negative, uh, positively on our life, we understand it's going to happen, uh, that is, by the hand of God's grace on our lives. Now the Bible also says, and we studied uh, just some weeks ago uh, in the book of Hebrews, that through our perfect high priest Christ, we have been perfected forever. Uh, that is, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And there again we see this passive process uh, that is actively uh, uh, taking place by the work of the Spirit of God. Now we read in Philippians chapter 2 something of great, great implications in regard to our salvation. And it's a familiar verse to us and I want to read it to you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. I believe we could probably go, we could spend a year of Sundays talking about this verse. They are grand, magnificent 
implications to what Paul says here in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Now, we're talking about, to begin with, the nature of sanctification. And as we would think about the nature of sanctification, we begin with the fact that it is God who sanctifies. Yet we find here in this verse how it is, the nature of the work of sanctification, how it is that God is doing that. We find that He is doing that, as I've said so many times, and I say again, not externally pulling us uh, to something or to some end, but rather internally working through us to bring about His good pleasure in our lives. He is working uh, both to will and to do. Now, now you'll notice here that it talks about in these verses, our work, Paul says, uh, as much as you've obeyed me in my presence, now obey me in my absence. What is it that Paul is pressing them to obey? It is this, that they work out their own salvation. Now we understand then that what Paul is commending them to is to put what God has done on the inside on display outwardly. Work out your own salvation. Now at the same time, the very same verses tell us not only are we to be working out something, we, are see, we see how we are unable to work it out as God is working in. Work out your own salvation, Paul says, uh, in the imperative uh, mood. And then he goes on to tell us how we're unable to do that. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Now you'll remember last Sunday, I hope you will, uh, the word that I quoted from the 17th century Puritan John Flavel. He said, the duty is ours, but the power is God's. Amen? The duty is ours, but the power is God's. Now, we could apply that, that, that truth that is scriptural to really any command in the Scripture. We could look at even the Gospel commands to repent and believe. The duty is ours. Uh, the Bible says that men everywhere have been commanded to repent and believe. Yet the power is God who grants repentance and gives faith. The duty is ours and the power is God's. The Christian life on display is not a result of conditions met bilaterally. Now, 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 a bilateral condition would be a twofold condition. In other words, we think about uh, that is the Christian life on display. Uh, that is a manifestation of our sanctification. That is what Paul is commending uh, the believers to in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation. Christian life on display. Now, if the Christian life, if we imagine it being displayed in the heart of a believer, we understand that that's not happening by two conditions being met. That's not happening by a bilateral conditions, uh, that is. That's not happening. In other words, we see that happening as a result of God doing something plus me doing something. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't happen. In other words, and the only time we'll ever see that is when we have these two things take place. That is, God does this thing, and we do this thing, and when those two things meet, then then we have, uh, that is the result, the desired result of our working out our salvation. That is not what Scripture teaches. Sanctification is not a result of a bilateral condition being met. It's not a result of a, a, a synergy. It's not a result of, 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 of uh, uh, equal cooperation. It's important that you understand that. We'll miss the entire truth of the Scripture. Uh, what we find is that this life on display is a result of, uh, that is, a unilateral condition. In other words, it's a result of God doing His work. 
And when that condition is met, it's not as if we look at this as if God does His part and I do mine. How many of us have heard and even said that God helps those who help themselves? We've heard that. I want to tell you, that has no relevance to the Gospel, period. And by the way, that's not Scripture. That's not, we're not quoting Scripture when we say that God helps those who help themselves. Now, I'm not telling you that that uh, temporal, earthly proverb doesn't have some application in some circumstances. But in regard to our salvation, in regard to our sanctification, it is completely erroneous to apply that truth in anything. God helps those who cannot and will not help themselves. That's the truth of the gospel. In regard to our salvation, in regard to our sanctification, God is helping those who cannot help themselves. So it's not my work plus God's work equals sanctification. It's God's work results in my work to equal sanctification. You see, God's work enables and the result of God working in me is me working out what God has worked in. For it is He who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And what that means is you need to understand, friend, that you don't have the wisdom and neither do I to discern my experience that is apart from the Word of God. And what I mean by that is this. Let's say God has saved you. Amen. And, and, and it's happened like it has for many of us and most of us when we first get saved we don't really know a whole lot of biblical truth because normally, typically the unregenerate aren't ones who are drawn to the Word of God. So we're new. We're newborn babes and we don't know and we don't have the ability to discern what happened to us and how it happened because in salvation it's a radical thing that happens to us, isn't it? Man, we've changed natures. We've changed destinies. We're no longer, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When that kind of thing happens to people, they don't have the ability to discern exactly what has happened apart from the Word of God. So what I'm saying is, is that we need to look to the Word of God to see what has happened. And what we see that happens in that is that God acted upon us in a powerful, transforming way to make us who we are so that he has worked in us to will that is if you have any unction to anything that is truly good that came you need to understand friend that came from God that came from the Holy Spirit that's why the scripture says is it a good thing to seek after God absolutely yet the scripture says no one seeks God the Bible tells us that in salvation God sought us and then as a result, as we see here, as a result, not God doing His part and me doing mine. Boy, that is a defiance of the gospel. Just to even think of that. And so many are given to that. God does His part and I do mine. And we have a cooperative effort that equals what? That equals hell is what it equals, if that's your mindset. God doesn't need your help. He didn't need mine. We wouldn't have been any help even if He'd have received it. We find the nature of sanctification understands that it is God who is acting upon men and women and children who are in Christ. And the result of that is us then working and doing. 
Now, uh, this scripture would tell us as well, not only is the Christian life on display not a result of these bilateral conditions, it's not a result of cooperative effort between us and God, it's a result of a unilateral condition met by God which results in our willing and doing what He is willing and doing. Now, it's not, uh, Brother Gary Wayne, what the preacher you shared with me one time, you said we're not the frozen chosen. Look, we believe what the Scripture teaches about election, but God hasn't chosen us to be frozen. We're not to be the frozen chosen. The Scripture teaches us that if God has chosen us from the foundation of the world, there are going to be radical evidences of that in our lives, for real. And if there aren't, then you better make your calling and election sure. As the Scripture says. Now, so we must make sure that on the one hand, when we understand these two things, on the one hand, we must not be arrogant or boastful to take credit for the things that God has done. In other words, it is, I believe, when you compare to Scripture, what Scripture teaches, it is arrogant and boastful to think that our salvation or our sanctification is a cooperative effort between us and God. So we want to guard against that. We want to guard against this relying upon our own strength, whether it be to be saved or relying upon our own efforts to be sanctified. You can't be saved, neither can you be sanctified by your own efforts, even with the aid of God. But on the other hand, we need to also make sure that we're not neglectful and complacent in essence, holding God responsible for our sin, for our complacency, for our neglect. You see, we can understand these truths, uh, that is, and abuse these truths in this way. All right, God wants me to be sanctified. The preacher told me that it's God who sanctifies, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do nothing. Just sitting back waiting for God. And I can say to you, well, why are you doing nothing? Well, I don't know. I guess because God's doing nothing. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a recognition of knowing that Paul's salvation and his sanctification is in the hands of God. I am what I am. He was what he was as a Christian by the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. Now, how does that play itself out? Was it, is it not truthful to, to say that, that Paul was, was one of the greatest laborers that ever lived? Certainly it's truthful to say that Paul labored, even as he does here. Yet he recognized it was God working in him. Did that mean that it was any less of Paul actually doing it? No. Paul labored more abundantly. He labored. He felt the marks on his back and the pain in his back. He sweated at his brow when he gave all the diligent effort uh, that is from God. God wasn't dragging him along externally like some kind of superhero, but God was working in Paul, a human being just like you and I, and Paul was actually doing those things that God was doing in him. Paul was actually working out what God was working in. He was laboring more abundantly than them all, not taking abuse of the fact that God is going to do, but rather showing his life of what God was doing. You know, we're not even able to discern that. This morning, I want you all to take this wrong or misunderstand, 
But in one sense, it feels like I'm up here by myself. I'm just preaching now. Just you know, And what I'm doing is not beyond, at least what we can see, is not behind, uh, beyond the human ability. All I'm doing is up here talking from a human perspective. I don't feel, I don't really feel, you know, not that I'm doing anything great for that matter, but I don't feel some kryptonic superhero power all behind me. I don't. Now, I can tell you this, that if anything good happens today, it's going to happen by the work of God. Amen? I can tell you that. But I can't necessarily see that or, or, or circle that or touch that. You see, it's kind of a mysterious thing. It's almost like Christ in His dual nature. He was 100% a human being. The church is held to this. The Bible teaches this, most importantly, that He was in the flesh, that He came down from heaven and He took on the form of the bondservant and He came in the likeness of a man. He was just like us, yet without sin. And at the same time, He was 100% God. Now you see, I can't fathom that because we got two things going on at one time in one person. And I really can't, I can't up on the wall if I had a chalkboard, I couldn't draw out for you how this mystery of the union of two in one takes place. That is, God doing something in me and through me and here I am yet doing it of myself. But that's the way God works. Not by myself, but as a result of what God is doing in me. So that we are to get up, we're to pray, we're to trust that God is doing and yet we're to go do. John Flavel would tell us the duty is ours and the power is God. Well, what are we to do? We're to do our duty. By the grace of God and with the help of God. Paul says, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. In Colossians 1, he says this, he says, Christ we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Now what Paul just said there, to present every man perfect in Christ, that is, that is the end of sanctification. That's what Paul is aiming at. His ministry was all geared toward, like it should be for any pastor, the glory of God and the edification of the church, the sanctification of the church, the growth of believers in Christ. He is presenting or working hard to present them perfect before Christ. He goes on to say this, To this end, that's the goal. Paul says, this is my goal, to present, present every man perfect in Christ. To this end I labor striving according to His working which works in me mightily. Hey, you get all that? What's Paul saying again? I'm done. Man, in the process of sanctification, implicitly, even Paul's own, and, and then explicitly, he's speaking of the sanctification of the believers that he ministered to. He says, I labor and I give myself to this end. That is that you would be sanctified at the same time Paul recognized that it was according to the mighty working of the power of God. Not that that was an excuse. Do you see how we dishonor? You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father which is in heaven. We recognize that every good thing that, that, that is in us, that happens to us, or that happens through us is a result of the grace of God. 
Our sanctification happens by the working of God, yet it happens in such a way that we are personally, intimately active and involved in it because He works in us to will. How much more personal can that be? And to do for His good pleasure. John 17, Jesus prayed, and this this underscores the importance of sanctification. He says, as He prays the high priestly prayer before His death, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then we find that that, that the, the truth, the preaching of the truth, the gospel truth, the scriptures are an enabler to, a means to our sanctification. Sanctify them, Lord, by your truth. Your word is truth. So it's right to say that an aim of any of the scriptures, any place you write, might read, an aim of the word of God is to sanctify us more and more. To set us apart to the purposes of God more and more and more. Certainly we come here today to worship God, which is our primary objective. But likewise, we come, uh, that is, to grow. If if it wasn't the purpose of our personal growth and our personal sanctification, then we could have just went home after Ethan sang. But no. Primary to the church throughout the ages, the Orthodox Church by the commandments of Scripture is the preaching of the Word of God that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to bring to division the joint and the spirit and the soul and the marrow. I know I I, uh, crossed those up. Uh, but, But the Word of God, even today, now... I don't know how, and I can't measure it, and I can't write it down. I don't have the, uh, the, 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 um, the consequence to my life that I once did when I did electrical work. You know, I could go in and I could wire the building. Uh, I could wire the house, and it was once dark. And when I get done, a few days later, I walk out, and man, there's power on. The AC's running, the lights are on. You can see the work of your hands in front of you. My work doesn't have that nature anymore much. Not like you can see a whole lot immediate. Certainly I see some things that God is doing in it through us and I'm thankful for them, but they're not immediate kind of things. Yet I know, and what preacher could continue on if he didn't know, I know that God is doing His work. He's doing it this morning. And He does it through His words. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And for their sakes I sanctify myself said the Lord, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. You see, preaching is a declaration of the saving and sanctifying work of God, but it's also a presentation of the duty that those who are saved and are being sanctified have. We would be amiss to abuse God's grace. As Paul says uh, so many times in the Scriptures, God forbid that we abuse God's grace, but rather we are to display God's grace in our lives. So the nature, the nature of our sanctification is seen in the realities of the fact that God is doing it, but He's doing it in us, and He's doing it through us, so that in the process of our sanctification, I don't add my doing to God's doing to get the result, but my doing is a result of God's doing to His glory that manifests itself in the working out of my salvation. Now, the nurture, we'll talk about the nurture of that now. So in other words, what do we do? What are we to be doing that lends to our sanctification? Uh, and we might more rightly say, uh, though we don't always have to say it, but we more, might more rightly say even, well, what is God doing in us and through us to bring about 
this end. Uh, there is a nurture. Nurture is that which promotes growth. So, so we use the word nurture. What can we do to nurture this kind of growth? And that's what I believe Colossians chapter 3 is about. Now we can look at several places and I commend you to Ephesians 4, uh, here in Colossians 3, Romans 6, and for that matter chapter 7 and 8, and, and a few other places, Galatians chapter 5, that are places that specifically look at the sanctification process and how God is bringing about our personal growth. Now, what we've talked about is indicated in verse 1. Paul says, If then you were raised, seek those things which are above. Now, the seeking and the setting we'll talk about in a minute is nurturing sanctification in us. It's the means by which God uh, seeks for us to nurture, uh, that is, this process of growth. But we see, Paul says, and this is in line with what we've talked about in regard to the nature of sanctification, that those who are to nurture it by seeking the things that are above and setting their minds on the things that are above are those who have been raised in Christ. If, Paul says if, the if is a, a particular condition, uh, that is, and, and Paul understands, he assumes that whom he's speaking to have been raised in Christ. And also, he understands that nobody is going to seek the things that are above, and nobody is going to set their mind on the things that are above unless they have been raised anew with Christ. You see, and again, it underscores the emphasis that we've talked about, that it is God who saves and it is God who sanctifies and it is God who enables our willing and our doing. Now, as the nurture of that, uh, we would understand nurture to be illustrated in like watering a garden. Now, I'm not a gardener. Some of you guys are. Y'all know you've got to have water uh, for a garden. If you've got plants, some of you ladies or, or men alike may use, you use miracle Grow. You feed. You do a positive thing, uh, that is, to promote growth, that is, you nurture by feeding. It's a simplistic point, but it also is a great point in regard to our Christian lives and sanctification. Peter says that as newborn babes in Christ desire the pure miracle of the Word. You understand, he understood implicitly, as Paul does here, that nobody's going to desire the pure miracle of the Word unless they've been made a newborn babe. But a newborn babe necessarily, uh, that is, as a result of being a newborn babe, is going to desire the milk of the Word. And that milk is going to nourish, that milk is going to nurture that baby. You and I have a spiritual life as well that needs nurturing and it needs watering. And we find that the way Paul tells us to do that in chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 1 and 2, is that we we are to first seek those things which are above. We are to pursue the things which are above. We are to search for, we are to hunt down, and we are to be like a bloodhound on a good scent. We are to be pursuing the things that are above. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom and His righteousness. What does that mean? That means that the priority of our life of pursuing is to be that we are pursuing the things of God. Now, we're all a pursuing people. Even the one who lays around on the couch all the time doesn't do anything. They're a pursuing people. We're all pursuing something. We're all seeking something. And the question is, what is it that we're seeking? And one of the challenges for every Christian born again by the Spirit of God is that we would be giving ourselves to the seeking of the things that are above. And then necessarily, Paul understands that there needs to be a setting of the mind on the things that are above as well. The nurture includes both, seeking, searching, pursuing, and setting the mind, meditating upon. The word means to interest oneself in and to be mentally disposed in a certain direction. 
Well, we've been given the direction here. The direction is up. We're to be mentally disposed in an upward fashion in that we set our minds on the things of the Lord. And we get down to really some of the bare bones of our actual real lives and what goes on up here. Remember the Bible tells us we're to have the mind of Christ in Romans 12.1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed in the image of this world, but rather be ye transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Our growth becomes dysfunctional if our mind is not set on things that are above. I heard one preacher say that our feet need to be on the ground and our minds need to be up in heaven. One preacher, another preacher said, not to the extent that we find ourselves uh, to be so much given to the things of heaven that we're no earthly good, uh, but, but rather our minds need to be set upon the things that are of heaven and are above, not on the things that are of the earth as Paul warns here. Well, what would that be? How would we distinguish between the two? Well, Jesus Himself gives us a good way to do that when He says uh, there in the Gospels that we're not to lay up for ourselves treasure on earth where rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal. But you all know what He says. He says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where rust and moth cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. So we have a test then of, of what is the earthly thing and what is the heavenly thing. If the rust can get it and the moth can get it and the thief can get it, chances are that's the thing we're not to waste our mind space on. You remember in Psalm, Psalm number 1, Blessed be the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. For he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, who brings forth fruit in his season, who leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. What a beautiful picture of the man, first of all, that roots and plants himself in the Word of God. And his thoughts and his mind are saturated with the things of God and the Word of God. And then the, the temporal earthly illustration of a tree planted by rivers of water. A tree that has a source of life. And then as a result of having a source of life, bears fruit and brings shade. Will that be the kind of people that we want to be to our children to bear fruit and to bring shade and to manifest the life of God in us. And that happens as we give ourselves and give our minds primarily here to seeking those things that are above. That's why it's so important for us to study the Scriptures, not just as some legalistic thing that we make ourselves do so we can mark up a thing on the list, but as food for the soul. And I remind you of the simple truth, Christian. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the little that we study the Scriptures and our neglect in regard to the study of Scriptures points to this reality. Spiritually, we are starving ourselves to death. Jesus' Word does not lie. If you fail to study God's Scripture in any kind of habitual, consistent way, you're hungry. Your soul is hungry and dry and in a thirsty place. The nurture of our sanctification is that we seek, that we set our minds on the things of God. We water the garden of our souls. You see, we've given such an emphasis to just salvation. Nobody wants sanctification. 
You'd have heard me say that everybody just wants enough of Jesus to be saved, and that's not the way Christianity works. That's not the way the gospel works. You can't get just a little teeny bit of Jesus or just enough Jesus. You either get all of Jesus, it's all or nothing. And it should be what we talk about here is not anything, uh, as I mentioned on Wednesday night, well, we had a good Bible study Wednesday night, it was good to me. Uh, you know, our lives, the Scripture, are full of commandments for us. Full of commandments. Full of what we would call our duty. It's our duty, it's God's power. Gives us our duty, and by the power of God, we're going to obey these commandments. And, and, and we can make those commandments out in our minds to mean that God has confined us to a life of misery. And all that does is prove our ignorance. God doesn't give us His commandments to confine us to a life of misery, but God has given us every one of His commandments so that we would experience the blessing of being satisfied, that we would experience the blessing of having true joy, that we would experience the blessing of, of being, uh, that is, those who walk in the joy of salvation and in the abundance of life. His commandments are a roadmap to these ends. And let me tell you, friend, I don't have to tell you when you fail to water the spiritual life that is in you, when you fail to nurture it by the studying the Word of God and fellowship and all the things that the Scripture commends us to, our lives are not possessive of joy and peace and contentment. You can paint a smile on your face just like I can, but that don't mean there's joy in the heart. And if you're His, there is no joy in neglect. Matthew 6, 19, as we've mentioned, says don't lay your treasures up on earth, but rather we're to lay our treasures up in heaven. As I mentioned to the folks Wednesday night, there is substance to the command, come follow me. Sometimes we just fail to recognize. Here we are, we, we, we say we're Christians, and, and, and I guess it makes sense that most of us would embrace that means, if we're Christians, that means we follow Christ, but yet in our minds and in our experience, even more importantly, that evidently there's no substance to come follow me. Jesus lived a life of selflessness and of self-sacrifice, and He says, come follow me. And all the commandments that He gives us, all of our following of Him is a nurturing of life. And it reaps life even in us. Now, we've talked about the nature of sanctification. we talked about the nurture, that which promotes growth. It's the watering of a garden. But then we talk about the Scripture here mentions in verse 5-8, through 8, the mortification of sanctification, which is actually the opposite of the nurturing, which is the promoting of growth. The mortification is the putting to death of certain things. Sanctification does not happen outside of this twofold process, and that is of, of a nurturing and a watering. That is a positive following after the things of God and the Word of God, and it also happens by way of, of the negative, that is the putting to death of certain things. Those of you that have a garden know that not only do you need to water it, but you've got a lot of weeds that pop up that need to be pulled. That illustrates at least in part the mortification process. Mortification is a word that comes from the Latin. In the Latin Bible, uh, the word translated here in English, therefore put to death in Greek is uh, necros. Uh, it means to, to die, to put to death, to kill. 
Mortification is the act of putting to death physical desires and evil passions by self-denial and self-control. Self-denial is one of the things that Jesus absolutely calls us to as Christians. If you do not pick up your cross, deny yourself. Now the cross is an emblem of what? Shame. The reason you've got a cross to carry is that you're supposed to be dying on that cross. We each have our own cross that we're to carry that is symbolic of the death that we are dying. That is to these things we mentioned, to evil desires, to passion, to covetousness, so forth and so on. Also, the Bible tells us that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And friends, when we talk about a fruit of the Spirit, we're not talking about things that might accompany the Spirit. We talk about things that absolutely and necessarily accompany the Spirit. And the idea of self-denial and self-control is even completely foreign to many of us who call ourselves Christians. Not so much within the walls of this building, but in Christianity in general, in particular in America, self-denial and self-control are not something that's taught. That need to be. We're to put aside... Verses 5-8, through eight, let's read it. Therefore put to death, this is mortify your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Uh, we want to just stop and not talk about all of those, but talk about covetousness and how covetousness is foundational to all other sin. You think about the first two commandments in which were broken even before, uh, you know, in the, in the garden. The commandments at that time obviously hadn't been given, but yet the commands of God to not worship other gods and to not make a carved image, uh, which in essence are idolatry, were broken in the garden, and they were broken by covetousness. When Eve and Adam looked at the apple, it was pleasing to the sight and desires for them. And not only did they covet the apple, but more importantly, they coveted, uh, they wanted to be like God. Covetousness is a greed. When we look at the second tablet of the commandment, if we were to break any of those commandments, the foundational sin that we would break would be the last commandment of covetousness. If we were to, to murder, usually there's a reason for, reason for murder, whether it be our desire for to hide uh, something from people or to get something or whatever it be. It's all rooted in covetousness. The, the, the sexual sins, we're, we're told not to covet our neighbor's wife, but that's only part of what covetousness is. Covetousness is distinct from sexual immorality, though, like in other sins, covetousness plays a part in those different kind of catalogs of sins, such as sexual immorality. It's our desire for self and our desire for things that lead us to all the other catalog of sins that the Bible repudiates and that are abomination to God. The Bible says in Proverbs 20, hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. You see, covetousness at its heart is simply a hunger for self. Which is idolatry. At the essence, idolatry is always the object of worship and idolatry is always the same. It's me. Who makes the God in idolatry? Man makes the gods in idolatry. Who makes the rules in idolatry? These false idols don't go up on a mountain and write down things on a tablet. They're nothing. Who makes the rules? Men make the rules. Idolatry in every sense is self-worship. It's covetousness. 
In the eyes of man, the Scripture makes clear, the eyes of sinful man are never satisfied. And that covetousness can never, ever be quenched. We look around us and we see everything that we see all around us is a direct result of the covetousness and the greed of humankind to have more and more and more and in essence to worship self more and more and more. Now what does the Scriptures, because we're not as Christians, even as born again and those who are raised in Christ, we're not exempt from these forces that we've read from the Old Commandment. There's a remnant of these things that dwell in all of our faculties. What are we to do? We're to put the self to death. That's what we're to do. How do we do that? We starve it. You know how you would teach your children to not be spoiled? Listen. (laughs) Tell them no! God knows the children of this world need to be told no about 10,000 times. And that probably wouldn't be enough. We live in a day and age now where to tell our children no is absolutely the last resort. We live in a world where we never tell ourselves no. There is no evidence of self-control and self-denial even though these things are inherently part of what it means to be a Christian. We flipped Christianity upside down so that it means that Jesus will be a a means to our end. That Jesus will help me get what I want. God have mercy on a Christianity that's based on that. Put it to death. Fasting. Often, we often joke about fasting. I'm sure not many of us fast. Fasting is a discipline of self-control and self-denial. Fasting is a discipline of teaching, yes, even our physical bodies, no. If we could have enough discipline to withhold ourselves from the necessity of the body, then that might enable us to have enough discipline to withhold from ourselves those things that aren't necessary for the body. Jesus said in Luke 9, He said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. That is what we are dying on because sanctification is is not only about becoming more and more alive in Christ, it's becoming more and more dead in the old man. John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. And how do we kill out the old man? I think we all want to kill him, don't we? Don't we, Brother Chad? Man, I'm tired of him. Well, let me tell you how to kill him. Starve him to death. Don't give him anything that he wants. Set your minds on things that are above and feed the Spirit. You know, that's why so, You know, we're, we're all about choosing the neutral. Well, it ain't nothing wrong with this. You know what I'm saying? That's the neutral. Is there anything wrong with this? So we want to do those things that there might not be anything wrong with. Well, it might be that there's not inherently anything wrong with them, but they're not helpful at all. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. If it's not helping, if it's not feeding the Spirit, if it's not lending to our mind being set on the things of above, then why fool with it? You know, that's why it's so important. I don't want to become legalistic. We don't make up a bunch of rules. But, but, but why not listen to Christian music? Why not? That feeds the Spirit. 
It might be that Christian music might keep your mind on God and the things of God and according to what the Scripture says, that's a good thing. It might be that you can turn on the country station and maybe one or two out of, out of five or ten songs might be alright. They might talk about grandma and fried chicken and apple pies and sunny days and, and all those things. But as far as I know, those things might not feed the Spirit whatsoever at all. We can sing about grandpa telling me about the good old days, but that's not going to feed your spirit whatsoever. Is it going to hurt anything? Well, I don't know. If it's not helping anything, it could be hurting anything. You know, the, grave, the, the devil's greatest tool is just simply to distract us from the things that God would have us give our mind and heart to. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find true life. Matthew chapter 5 to emphasize the importance of the process of mortification, which in essence is the casting out and the putting to death of sin in our lives. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now listen to what he goes on to say. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. He goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it out from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now is Jesus teaching us self-mutilation here? No. You could cut your hand off and it's not going to cause you to quit sinning because your hand's not going to cause you to sin. It's your heart. Anyway, but what He is telling to us in a most radical, exaggerated way is you better do what it takes to cast sin out of your life. And what does the Scripture tell us that we can actively do to have that take place? Not cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, but suppress the earthly man and the earthly mind and give yourself to the things of God. Now, I don't know what everybody's thinking at this point. The flesh is out there thinking, well, man, I, what, I ain't supposed to do this, or I can't do that, or I can't do this, I can't do this. What I'm saying is feed the Spirit. You won't be disappointed. The trivial, childish things that we think bring some placing or fleeting joy to our lives really don't. Taste and see that the Lord is good, says the Scriptures. Oh, that Christianity seems awful radical when you preach it like that. Well, there's no other way to preach it because that's the way Jesus preached it. And yes, it is radical when you compare it to the world, but it's also the only thing that will fulfill your lives right now today. It's the only thing that will bring joy to your life right now today. It's the only thing that will grow us in Christ. And the more we grow in Christ, the closer we come to Christ and we find out that Christ is better than everything else. That's what we talked about on Wednesday night. Paul says, I have given up, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish that I might gain the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ. Jesus said, let me tell you, anybody that's left houses or fathers or mothers or wife or children or given their life for my sake, I tell you the truth, will be returned back to them a hundredfold. You're giving up the little... little Ninnies 
of the world. And that's what they are. They become little pacifiers that we suck on as earthly, sinful human beings. We suck on them. And y'all know how little children don't want to let go of their little ninny. What else do you call the little nook or whatever you call it? I remember when our kids were growing up, we, what did we do? We threw one of them out of the window one day. We was trying to wean them off that ninny. You know what? We need to be weaned. We need to throw our ninnies away. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Friends, God wants us. God is doing in us. I believe He's doing in us right now. That's what I have to believe as a preacher. It is God who's going to sanctify you and I. Amen? We're looking forward to this. God is going to do it, and I think He might be doing it right now because I know that He uses His Word to do it. I've told y'all a story before, and I'll tell you it again because it illustrates perfectly what we're talking about. Y'all remember the story of the missionary that had went to a group of Native American Indians? And it shared the gospel with an Indian chief who believed on Christ and gave evidence of the Spirit of the Lord in his life and turning from idols and superstitions and those kind of things. And the missionary went on to other groups and he came back about a year later and he saw the chief again and he asked the chief, he says, how's your spiritual journey with Christ going? And the chief said it's like a white wolf and a black wolf that are fighting together. And the missionary said, which one is winning? And the chief in, in wisdom said, whichever one I feed the most. Friends, there it is. Whichever one we feed the most. Don't be scared. God help me to throw my ninnies out. And taste and see that you're good. God, help me to plant myself by the rivers of living water. God, help us. We need help. Come on, guys. You know we do. God, help me to throw it out. And have you. And have you more clearly. And to know you better. And to reveal your glory to a world more so than what I do as I suck on my passing. Let's pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Michael Frazier of Grace Baptist Church located in Naylor, Georgia. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit our website at www.gracenaylor.org. Thanks for listening.